A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, Community Christian. My name is Nathan. I'm on staff here at the church. And uh, I don't know about you, but when you hear a large chunk of scripture read that says, uh, slaves obey your masters, I don't know how that hits you. There are large sections of scripture I think many of us would just prefer we could just overlook. But we've been in this series in the book of Ephesians, and this is in there. And for most of us, this is a very troubling words. Howard Thurman, who was a pastor and mentor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he wrote in uh, his fantastic book that if you haven't uh, gotten a chance to read, it's called Jesus and the Disinherited. It is a wonderful book uh, that still is very kind of prescient today for us. He talked about his grandmother, uh, Nancy Ambrose, who not only influenced his faith uh, greatly, was just a, a key part of his faith, but actually grew up as a slave on a plantation in Madison, Florida. And he would ha she would have him, uh, as a child, as an adult, read the Bible to her regularly. It was a regular part of their faith together. But she would tell him, never are you to read the letters from Paul. Never are you to read to me the letters from Paul, because... As a child, her slave masters and slave drivers would use these very same words that we just heard read to justify their abuse and mistreatment of her. And it was too painful, it was too traumatic for her to ever hear those words again and to imagine them coming from God. And so if you heard those words read and there was something in you that caused you to recoil a little bit, maybe with feelings of disgust or maybe with just this feeling a little bit of offense, well, then you should know that you're not alone in doing this. And what I want to do, really, before I even get to what is primarily what I need to teach today, I want to kind of deal with this emotion because it's very real. We've been in this series from this ancient letter written to an early church in a Roman colony of a place called Ephesus. And Paul is writing while he's in prison, and I think that's the part that we have to start whenever we're examining this. I want us to admit, these verses are not written to us. I do believe they are helpful for us. There's a difference between something being helpful for you and something being written to you. These words were written to a culture with values and customs and ideas that are completely foreign to us. Even our concept of slavery is vastly different from what anyone in Ephesus, when they would have heard this, would have thought about. 
The civil rights leader and activist and pastor named John Perkins wrote in his book, One Blood, which if you haven't read it, it is also absolutely wonderful. He points out that Roman slavery was not at all like what the race-based chattel slavery that we think of as being a part of the American South and being the part of our history, maybe one of the worst parts of our history that we don't ever want to have to think about for many of us. The kind of slavery that Paul is writing about here is most often referred to as bond service. Now the difference between this is this is something that a person might enter into contractually, like a form of employment to pay off debts of some kind or to earn a living or to get in with some kind of bigger family household unit. They would enter into a contractual agreement and then at the end of their term of service they could be set free. It's a completely different thing. But that is not to say that it is any less horrific or that the Romans somehow had a form of slavery that was not horrific. Uh, Slaves had no rights. Historians, I mentioned this a few uh, weeks ago when I preached about a guy named Tom Holland who was not the Spider-Man guy, but a historian, wrote about the Roman form of slavery and talked about it as just as cruel, just as inhumane, just as physically, sexually exploitative as American forms of slavery. And in a world where most scholars believe that one out of every three persons, one out of every three most people, some people say one out of every two persons in the Roman Empire, was a slave, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright claims that the Roman economy, and almost every ancient form of economy, was run by slavery just like most of our economies are run by electricity. We can't imagine a world without it. And none of this is to justify. None of this is to excuse anything involving slavery. What I want to help you imagine when you hear these words from Paul is that no one had ever imagined it should be different because no one imagined it could be different. No one could imagine that anything could have ever been different. And the New Testament writings are incredibly unique. No one could imagine until Jesus, until his church, that anything could be different. The New Testament writings are unique in how they talk about how slaves and masters should treat one another, among other ancient writings. Eventually, Paul would write to a different church and say that the distinction of slave and free held no power there. This distinction held no power. And several historians have mentioned this is the first statement in history that you could talk about any form of equality, an egalitarian statement that all people are made equal, something we have written into our Declaration of Independence, though there was hypocrisy written into that. And so no one had ever imagined anything could be different. One book in the New Testament is a letter written by Paul to a master, a slave master named Philemon, who slave Onesimus had escaped and run away to Paul while Paul is actually in prison. And Paul tells Philemon in this letter, hey, Onesimus is going to return to you, but when he does, he will not return as a slave. He will return as a brother. Now, we don't know if that means that Philemon freed him, because once again, you have to imagine in this economy, setting someone free did not mean suddenly they had housing. 
and that suddenly they had a job and they had a way to move forward. So we don't know what happened for Onesimus. What we do know is Paul's instruction was Philemon, he is not coming back as your slave, he is coming back as your brother and you should treat him accordingly. There's no writing like this has ever existed throughout history. This concept of slavery was how every ancient society ordered itself. Every ancient society did. But within the church, a new kind of society began to give birth. So even though Paul, and I think this is what most of us are trying to see, why does Paul never have a writing that says we should abolish slavery? I think that's what most of us are looking for. Why does he not talk about the institution of slavery? Why does he not try to abolish it? Just because he didn't write it didn't mean that the church didn't think it was evil. In fact, they had no legal ability to make anything happen. Had he written the words, the institution should be abolished, they couldn't vote it into into policy. There was no option for such a thing to happen. But here's what we know. Most ancient historians agree that one of the greatest social outrages that was towards the early church was this outrage, that they treated their slaves like brothers and sisters. It outraged the ancient world. It did not come across as good news to them that the institution of slavery was going away. And by the 4th century, which is when Christians had political power in Rome, we actually have Christian writings that are advocating for the entire eradication of slavery. So even though these words of Paul, and I think this is how most of us, they just hit us at a gut level. They feel somehow as some outdated form of pro-slavery propaganda. You should know the actual effect of these words. What they actually did was create in the ancient world a community where slavery didn't have any power. The actual effect of the words is different than the way that we hear them. They created a community where freedom was possible. So if the goal was not to reinforce slavery, if the goal of what Paul has been writing is not the dominance of husbands and fathers, well, what was the point? What Paul is doing in this section of his letter is writing a new household code for believers. In the ancient world, society was structured around households, which were much larger than our idea of the nuclear family. A household was centered around the head of household, who had all authority and power over his household, which was usually comprised of however many wives and children and slaves he had. And whereas power and wealth and influence in our world are usually centered in corporations, meaning those with the most power and wealth and influence are the CEOs and investors. In the ancient world, authority was held by the head of households, which is why household codes were created, to instruct households on how the flow of power and authority should be handled. Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, wrote one of the most famous household codes in his politics. He said, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, The male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. (laughs) Now you'll notice a couple of things. First, Aristotle must have killed it with the ladies. Second, you'll notice this entire household code is written to the head of household. Wives, children, and slaves are only addressed as the object that the head of household has authority over. But Paul does the opposite. 
Before he addresses husbands, he speaks to wives. Before he addresses fathers, he speaks to children. Before he talks to the masters, he talks to the slaves. Paul writes his household codes and first addresses the person with less power and authority. He's bringing dignity to them by acknowledging them first. But also notice this, Paul's instructions to wives, children, and slaves aren't new instructions. Wives were already expected to submit to their husbands. Children and slaves were legally required to obey. Paul is not writing a new household code. He's subverting the ones that existed. He's saying, sure, wives submit to husbands, but husbands love your wives like Jesus loved the church by laying down his life for her. Head of households had no obligations to anyone in their household. But Paul says, just as your wife submits to you, you have to submit your life to her. This must have sounded explosive to them. He says, children, obey your parents, and everyone agrees with this. But I'm saying, fathers, you need not exasperate your children. Don't abuse your authority over them. Fathers, you are to serve your children in love. And then he says, slaves, obey your masters, but not because God made him superior to you. He says, serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. He's saying, I know it seems like you are just the property of your master, but you're not. You belong to Christ Jesus. And so when you serve your master, you're not doing it because you're inferior, but because you are following your true master's example who served you on the cross. And then Paul says to the masters, and masters treat your slaves in the same way. Wait, just as my slave is supposed to serve me, I'm supposed to act the same way to them? Paul says, exactly. Just as your slave should serve you as if Jesus was their master, you should treat your slave as if Jesus was your slave. Whoa. Paul, it makes me uncomfortable to think about Jesus being my slave. Maybe it should make you uncomfortable to have this person made in Christ's image as your slave. Do you see how these instructions of Paul are not reinforcing slavery or the domination of women and children, but they are upending the power dynamics of a sinful society. Paul begins this whole section by saying, submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ or just as you submit to Jesus, submit to one another. Whether you're a slave or a master, a husband or a wife, a child or a parent, all of you must submit. And this is not new for the powerless slave or wife or child. But for those with all the power and authority, this was a brand new way of living. It created a new kind of society within the church where power was shared and dignity was freely given to everyone but it was not contained to the church. These communities became ground zero for a new kind of life that infected the world, a healing that spread from these small house churches and transformed an empire and eventually all of human history. This is the kind of life still at work wherever ordinary people choose to submit to one another out of reverence for their crucified king. So the question that I want us to deal with today is not primarily about masters and slaves. It's this. What does it look like to submit when you find yourself with power and authority over other people? Well, it looks like Jesus. 
Jesus' entire life was marked by being a servant to others. So the king of kings, who had all power, all authority, he shows up and is born among poor parents. He serves sinners. He slows down and spends most of his time with the weak and the sick and the poor. He washes the feet of his disciples. And he dies a death that in Rome was usually only reserved for slaves. And so Jesus told his followers, if you want real life, it is not found in being the greatest or the most important or the person who takes that high seat of honor where everyone looks to you as most valuable. But it is found in giving your life away. Jesus said, you take up your cross and you follow me. You die to yourself. You take up your cross. You make your life an offering to God and a blessing to others. And so author Richard Foster says that what submission does is it teaches us to give our lives away. He says, submission is the spiritual discipline that frees us from the everlasting burden of always needing to get our own way. And I love that because that's not the way that we see it. But it is an everlasting burden that you carry that you must always get things your own way. Do you realize how much of your life is centered around everything going your way? How much of your frustration is around someone else not giving you things your own way? How much anxiety that you have is around, well, maybe this won't go my way. In fact, many of us think that this is what it means to be a leader, to be someone with authority, to be someone who has power. This is what it means to be the boss. This is what it means to be the employer, to be the parent, to, to be a leader. That what leadership requires is that you have this clear and unique vision that is just yours. And you set out your vision, and you set out your goals, and you have your strategy, and you figure out, how can I get everyone else to do my vision? How can I get everyone else to accomplish my personal vision? That the point of being a leader is getting other people to help me accomplish what I want. And if you don't use really good inspirational corporate words like vision and strategy and goals and we're going to execute the vision, you can very simplistically call leadership getting other people to do what I want them to do. That's what most of us think that leadership is. And we think that's the point. That's the whole perk of being the dad. That's the whole perk of being the mom, of being the boss is I finally get to have things my way. I put my time in at minimum wage. And now I get to make things happen the way I want to make them happen. And so we, we admire people and we create cultures around people and we celebrate people who push through every obstacle and they hustle past everyone telling them no and they push through the doors that everyone says no to and they don't take no for an answer. And they make their vision happen by any means necessary. But we have all seen, either on the news or maybe in your personal workplace, what happens when a leader uses people to get what they want and accomplishes their vision by any means necessary. The kind of toxicity that often exists in those places where the bottom line increases, but human beings suffer. Where profits increase, but human beings suffer. Now, some of us just think, well, that's just the way it goes. 
That's why you work as hard to get on top so you can do what you want. And if you make minimum wage, maybe you should work a little harder. Maybe you should try and get to the top. It's the American dream. You can start at the bottom, make it to the top. But Jesus told his disciples, hey, you know how the people in power use their authority? And he says they lord it over the people who have authority to get what they want out of other people. What does he tell them? Not so with you. Which isn't to say that you should never be in leadership as a follower. He doesn't say that you never have power. What he's saying is when you do find yourself in power and in authority, you will not behave like everyone else thinks is acceptable. You will not just behave in the way that gets whatever you want. So Paul says to a group of masters, be careful how you treat your slaves. Because you know that he who is both their master, oh, that's right, you too have a master. That he is both their master and yours. He's in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. He does not favor the CEO over the employee. You may be the boss, but you are a servant of Christ. And he cares more about how you speak to your employees, how you treat your employees, than if you ever accomplish the vision that you have. He cares way more about how you care for people and how you treat people, your clients, how honest you are than where your bottom line ever goes. He is way more interested in any of that or your goals for your career. And when you become a parent, at least when I did, you got all kinds of vision and goals for those kids. Everybody holds that baby, and they have all kinds of visions and all kinds of goals of how it's going to turn out. And then they become a little older, and you got short-term goals like, we got to get out of this house with everybody dressed and everybody out on time with as minimal tears as possible. And then when you find out when you've got four daughters like I do, that's not possible. You ain't making it anywhere without tears, right? And I might be able to give you two of those things. I might be able to get us out of the house fully dressed on time, but there are going to be some tears. And I'm willing to sacrifice one of those two for the other, right? We end up kind of moving that direction. Or you have goals, and your goal is I want to get their homework done, I want to get the veggie eaten, I want to get off the ball practice with a smile, and as your plan starts to fall apart and you've got all these things that you want to accomplish, suddenly words start coming out of your mouth in a tone of voice that you wouldn't even speak to your enemies with, with the people that you love the most. And then you look at one of your children and you say, can we act like we're bigger than six years old? And they say, I'm five. And you think, why? Why can't this happen? Then your kids get older and you have the kind of vision of the student that they become, the kind of grades they would make or the college they'd go to or their career they'd pursue. When I was doing youth ministry around here, I regularly have parents come to me, can, can you talk to this kid about the grades they make? And I'd say, you want me to get them better grades? I'm not in the class. And they'd say, no, I don't care about the grades. I want them to do their best and they are not a C student. And I'd say, have you met your student? You should be asking them when they got a C if they cheated. It turns out it was the grade. If doing their best means making the best grade, then maybe it was the grade. And you have a vision of this is the kind of grade, this is the kind of college, this is the kind of career they'd pursue. And then you turns out at one point that the kid you got is nothing like the kid you carefully crafted in your mind when you held them as a baby. 
And you try to figure out in that moment, well, how do I get them on my plan? And before you know it, you've got adult children. You had a vision of how the holidays would look. Or that you'd take vacation together. Or you'd get to babysit more. Or you'd get to see things happen in the way that you always envisioned them to be. And that isn't matching up with reality. And before you know it, you find yourself nagging and guilt-tripping and manipulating or you're shouting and you're arguing. You're trying to get a teenager or an adult person on your plan and it is exasperating for both you and them. It is exasperating. And here's the problem. For many of us, we kind of think, well, that's what being a parent is. This is what's good and acceptable and right. In fact, in our culture, we have phrases like this, and I know you can all finish it. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. happy. Why isn't that phrase, if mom or dad ain't happy, they're grown adults and should be used to disappointment? (laughs) If anyone should be used to disappointment, it should be mom and dad. But we think what the goal of it is, I can get everyone on my plan that we do things my way. It's because we live with an everlasting burden, and it is a burden to always have to get things the way you want them to be. We think our lives are only as good and we are only as successful as we accomplish every goal we have and we get everything just the way we want. And submission is not Jesus saying that somehow leadership is bad, or that having goals is bad, or that having plans or a vision is bad. It's not saying that you don't hold people accountable. It isn't saying that you don't give consequences for bad behavior. All of this is necessary. What submission is about is about freeing me from the pressure that I feel as mom or dad or boss to make sure everything goes the way I see fit. And I want to talk more about that in a minute because I know for many of us, we already have a lot of situations, and maybe it's your personal situation. Oh, but what about this? But what if this? You got all the reasons why submission is not the right thing for you to do. I want to deal with that in a moment, but instead of me trying to deal with all the but what abouts, I want to give us a moment in the quiet to kind of talk to God about this. So I've asked Steve to come out and lead us in a time of reflection. Jesus told his followers that they were not to use power and authority in the way that the people of the world do. And so the chief leadership image in the Bible is not a master over a slave. It's not a general over soldiers. It's a shepherd and sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. Leaders in the church are referred to as pastors or in some translations as shepherds. Shepherds are not generals advancing uh, their mission and goals by any means necessary. The job of a shepherd is to draw near to the sheep and to know their needs, to know when they need to lie down or when they need to move. Shepherds provide for and guide their sheep. They protect, they correct, and as parents and leaders, that's what submission looks like for us. We are to care more for the good of those under our power than about accomplishing our goals. And this doesn't mean that we abandon our goals, but the goal never takes precedent over the person. So before we move forward today, we just want to pause 
and talk to God about the ways that we use power and authority in our lives. And to do that, we just want to pray through the words of Jesus. And so when you see the words in bold on the screen, would you read those out loud with me? Let's begin. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So take a moment and talk to God. Are there ways in which you're misusing the power and the authority that you have to advance your own interest above others? Are there ways that you're trying to force your way or trying to get what you want out of somebody by any means necessary? Ask God to reveal that to you now. And now let's read these words of Jesus together. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now take a moment to ask Jesus, the good shepherd, to show you what it looks like to follow his example with your power and your authority. Ask him to lead you in laying down your life, your goals, your dreams, your vision for the sake of loving and serving those that you have power and authority over. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have done damage to others by misusing our power and authority. Teach us the humble and gentle path of submission that you showed us through your life and death. May we honor you and the people that you've given to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, as we're kind of wrapping this up, here's a definition of submission that I find helpful for those of us who find ourselves in positions of power. This is it. Submission is using my power, the power and the authority that I've been given to empower others, empower those under me to have what they need or to do what is right rather than to get what I want. Submission is, I have power, I have authority, I have something in this situation, and I could use it to force you to give me what I want. I could use it to try and exasperate you and compel you to do the thing I want, or I could use it to empower you to do what is right or to have what you need. This is why Paul 
tells fathers, don't exasperate your children. Because I could use my words and my authority and my tone as mom or dad to pressure and to coerce and to guilt trip and exasperate my children until the things finally go the way I want them to go. Or I could find out a way. How could I empower them to do what they need to do? To do what is right. And this is how Paul says it, to train them in the instruction of the Lord. That it doesn't mean that you don't ever have any kind of power, any kind of influence, any kind of sway, any kind of correction. It's when you use it. It is to train them in the instruction of the Lord and not make sure they turn out exactly the way you kind of always dreamed them to be. Submission when you have power, when you're the boss, when you're the mom or the dad, it is about being helpful. It is about lifting others up. And so here's the question that submission requires every mom, every dad, every boss to ask. It's this. We've asked this before. What can I do to help? What can I do to help? Not what do I want. Not how can I get you on my plan. Let's figure out what it takes for you to do what mommy says to do. Let's figure out what can I do to help you. Imagine that, as a boss, what if your chief goal every day was not somehow your bottom line or your deadlines, although those things matter, but that what ultimately you're trying to figure out is how can I help my employees? And not only at their job, but I want to help them as people. How can I make sure that the pressure that I'm putting on them is not making them suffer as a person? And so when deadlines are late or when someone is struggling or at their job or a problem arises and your first thought, if you're like me, is, well, let's just push harder. Let's just power up. Let's make sure they know who's in charge, who's the one who's calling the shots here. Instead, what if you ask them? Maybe you just ask yourself, what could I do to help them? What could I do to help? And that may sound like some kind of impractical, naive, they got the young millennial pastor to come up and talk about this kind of nonsense. But could you imagine? And this is, I think, the question. What would it be like if Jesus was your boss? What would it be like if Jesus was the boss? This is the question Paul tells masters to ask. Hey, don't forget, you too have a boss. How would he treat you? How has he treated you on the cross? Therefore, how are you to treat every person in your life? Or, as a parent, when you're trying to leave the house and no one's listening to me and we're running late, and instead of asking, how come no one's listening to me? What if the question was, what could I do to help? which may mean slowing down a little bit, helping to figure out, hey, what is right in this moment that would honor my child, would honor what we're trying to do, would honor this situation? What could I do to help? Instead of just barking the orders and making sure things kind of go or threatening, hey, we're going to have problems if you don't do what I say. What if instead we stepped in like Jesus and said, what would this actually look like? Or when my preteen or your teenager is having an emotional overreaction, could you imagine a preteen or teenager having an emotional overreaction? In that moment, you could try and figure out, what am I going to do in this moment? And they're talking in a way. Maybe they're even behaving in a way. Maybe there's even a tiny bit of disrespect in the way that they're speaking, and there's a moment in you that boils up and goes, mm-mm, no, sir. And I want to power up. I'll tell you, in fact, just so you don't think this is a thing. Yesterday in my home was a day where we had a lot of emotion going on, all right? And there's a moment in the moment where I feel one of my daughters says something to me in a way that I did not like to hear. And my response was, I don't know, does anyone else clap talk? I walk in, I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, no, sir, no, ma'am, we ain't doing this. 
Every syllable has to be accomplished by us. And I feel the powering up happen. And then she said something in that moment that, thank Jesus, he spoke to me instead of what was going, the trajectory where that was going, dad powering up. Because don't you find it interesting when your teenager wants to ramp up the energy and ramp up the emotion? They don't know. I've been at this for 33 years. I got more emotion. I'm matching that. You keep that same energy. I'm coming right at you. And I can do it better and bigger. And I have. And I did in that moment. And it was wrong. And in that moment, she said something. I won't say what she said, but it made clear to me. Daddy took this too far. Because you're 10. Emotional overreaction is what you're supposed to do. I'm 33. The power I have in this moment is to know what you say about me doesn't mean anything about me. Why am I getting so emotional about this? So luckily, I slowed down and said, I'm sorry. Let's restart. And it changes the entire tone of the situation. It changes the entire tone because the power I have is to empower her in that moment to do what is right, which is to calm down, which is to have a calm discussion. But she can't do that when her dad is a stark raving lunatic. And so you have to step in that moment and go, what does submission look like? Or maybe you have a teenager, you have an adult child, and they are making decisions that not only do you disagree with, you think they're throwing away their future. You think they're throwing away their their life, and you want to step up in that moment and power up as mom and dad and use the tools that you have that primarily are just guilt trips or withholding affection or silent treatment until you make clear you know what you did disappointed me. Submission may look in that moment, what, what do they need in this moment from me? And maybe what they need is some space. Maybe what they need in that moment is to just back off and let go of control for just a moment. You could ask, what can I do to help? And that question sounds scary. My goal is no longer to help them to get to do what I want them to do. It's for me to help them choose to do what God says is right. And once again, it's not, not to help them get what they want. This is not my wants versus their wants. This doesn't mean that I never give consequences. This doesn't mean that there aren't boundaries, that there aren't expectations. This doesn't mean that I never try to find gentle and honoring ways to push my children forward. Or at that work that I never hold people accountable or I never set goals or I never set de deadlines. Because let's be honest, those things also are empowering. There's a whole bunch of stuff you wouldn't do if someone wasn't standing there going, hey, this might be your job. There are a whole bunch of things you would have never done in life if mom or dad never said, hey, there's going to be a consequence if we don't get this taken care of doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. Those are loving, helpful ways. Submission is not about me giving up my God-given job as the mom or the dad to correct and to guide and to influence my child or to be somehow a leader or a person of influence at my workplace. It is for me to choose to not center myself in every situation. It is a choice to say, my business plan or my career goals or my vision for how my house will go, that is not sacred. But the person I am dealing with is. The person I am dealing with is sacred. They are made in God's image. And God has told me that his vision for them was for me to love and to serve and to draw them towards him. And here's the truth. I know this is really complicated at times. There are limits 
to submission. There are people who will try and take advantage of you. There is abuse in families and workplaces that Jesus is not calling you just to submit to that. But here's the truth. Those complications, they are not reasons to ignore submission and write it off. They are reasons that you need a community of believers around you. These instructions were not given to an individual believer to just go figure out on their own. They were given to the church. They were given to communities of disciples who knew what was going on in one another's lives and they knew one another's families. They knew one another. They knew what was going on in each other's lives and they could speak truth to one another. They could encourage one another. They could love one another. You and I both need people who can walk with us through life, who can help us see the nuances of what submission actually looks like in our families and in our marriages and in our workplaces. The truth is you don't need advice from me. You need brothers and sisters in your life who also are filled with the Holy Spirit and that could look at your life and say, this is what I think it looks like for you. This is where I think you've crossed the line. This is where I think you need help. Which is why we say again and again, the church cannot just be content you consume. It must be a community. That we, as a community, you may not even know this. We have a parenting ministry. We have parents in this church who are willing to invest in you and to help you figure out in your life, with your kids, in your situation, what does it actually look like to do this, to walk this out? We have small groups. We have discipleship groups. We have people who want to get close to you to know what's going on in your life and to help you figure out what does it look like to love and honor your family like Jesus has called you to. So my question to you is, would you take a step towards community? Would you go to the Next Step Center? Would you sign up for the Next Step class that both uh, Kelly and Steve have already talked to you about? It's a one-hour class that helps you investigate what life with God in our community looks like. Because we want to be a community where children do obey their parents. We do. We want to be a community where parents submit themselves to Jesus as Lord. And therefore, they can freely submit to their children to help them, to love them, we want to be places where husbands and wives submit to one another. That we are people who in every situation we are looking to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That everything would actually be in perfect balance the way that Jesus would want it to be. But Jesus says the reason the children should obey their parents. Paul says the reason the pastors, I mean parents and masters submit is because they belong to Jesus Christ who first did this for us. So as we end our time together, we're going to remember the example of Jesus given to us on the cross. I've asked Steve to come out and help us with that.